Hey, everybody. Welcome to another week of Trashy Divorces. My name is Stacy. Hey, everybody. I'm Alicia. We are so delighted to have you with us today for this week's, holy cats, wild ride of marital misadventure, Stacy. Runaway, Del Shannon, which fits your... St- I, whoa, I can't even... I'm still stunned over your story. I've never heard anything like that on Trashy Divorces. Yeah, this is the story of Princess Haya of Jordan, but she was married to the ruler of Dubai for quite some time, and there were a lot of runaways in my story. Little jet ski adventure, stuff like that. Oh my god. A lot, lot going on. Ups, downs, all around. And, and you have someone who experienced some trauma... <laughs> A little bit. Today I'm covering the short-lived marriage and trashy explanations afterwards of the Elizabeth Moss-Fred Armisen pairing that was so fast that if you blinked, you would have missed it. I did miss it, in fact. Hey, before we start our episode today, I've got a magic mirror here to give some big love and thanks and praise. Big thanks for joining us at patreon.com slash trashy divorces to Matilda B., Kate M, Christina W, Sarah Ann, Shannon T, Kimberly W, Felicia D, Sasha T, Megan T. Thank y'all so, so much. And two new super supporters as well. Holy cats, Christine H and Kettle. Big love to y'all. Big love to our new supporters, our existing supporters, and to you for coming back to listen to another episode of Trashy Divorces where, wow, Really high trash can counts in this one today. Mm -hmm. Like some of my subjects, I think now we need to go, go, go. All right, Stacey, on deck this week, you have an international story with everything. Everything and more. I don't even quite know how to... How to tell this. Make it happen. Come on. So I have a bit of a complicated story for us today, Alicia. It has a lot going for it. There are royals, kidnappings, phone hacking, daring escapes, and a financial settlement of nearly three quarters of a billion dollars. Whoa. This is the story of how Princess Haya bint Hussein, daughter of Jordan's late King Hussein, managed to get herself and her two children away from her, let's say, very persistent husband, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, the multi-billionaire ruler of Dubai. Wow. Okay. Oh, and if Wikipedia is to be believed, he is our latest Trashy Divorces all-star as well. So congrats on that, Sheikh Mo. Good job, man. Congrats. Welcome to the club. It's such an exclusive. <laughs> anyway, I've seen the story popping up here and there in the U.S. tabloids over the last few years, but I'm pretty sure... This was a much bigger story for our British listeners for reasons that will soon become quite clear. All right, let's start with a little about the groom, as he is definitely the older of the pair at the tender age of 72. Sheikh Mohammed was born July 15, 1949, the third of four sons of those al Maktoums, the ones who are the hereditary rulers of the Emirate of Dubai since 1833. T.M. <laughs> I'm not sure whether the family was filthy rich at the time or not. Uh, Wikipedia somewhat confusingly says this of his childhood. Quote, Muhammad's early life was not grand. He grew up in a house without any electricity during his early years, and the family sometimes had to sleep together in one room with a fan. A hundred people or more lived in his house, including guards and slaves. 
in a one-room house and everybody just sleeps together? Thinking not a one-room house. Wow. I'm thinking it was just a palatial estate in an earlier time. Time without electricity. The 1950s? I don't know. I don't yeah. know. 100 people in a one-room house is a lot. I don't think it's a one-room house. But I was surprised that to learn that his early life was not grand, but they had slaves and stuff. Like, what is that? Okay. When he was born, Dubai and its Emirate neighbors, I think there are seven of them total, were closely tied to the United Kingdom, which had signed protective treaties with what were then known as the Trucial States, because there were truces in place. Huh. Right? Not technically part of the Commonwealth, but Commonwealth adjacent enough for Mohammed and his cousin to spend their teenage years being educated in the UK, and then for Mohammed to take officer training with the British military, graduating as the top Commonwealth student. His father was impressed, and upon Mohammed's return to Dubai, the 20 year old was named head of the Dubai police force. Sure. Probably and, have the experience for that. And the Dubai Defense Force. Nope. Like, let's just run the military, run all the security services, kids. 20? 20. Smart. Turned into a real resume booster, too, because when the British decided to withdraw from the trucial state situation and the sheikhs of the seven emirates in question agreed to form the United Arab Emirates, the UAE. 22-year-old Mohammed was named Minister of Defense. What can't this guy do? It's a really remarkable rise. Well, he can certainly get married. And in 1972, on a trip to Beirut, he met 16-year-old Rhonda Albana. Rhonda was in a bit of a rebellious period in her life, uh, having just been expelled from a convent school after spending a little too much time on the beach and... At night, in the clubs, dancing to the Bee Gees. Who can resist the Bee Gees? Not a 16-year-old in 1972, anyway. No. They married not long after meeting, and suddenly Rhonda was living in London with her very rich new husband in the swingin' 70s, and everything was awesome for a while. But inevitably, they were to return to Dubai with none of London's glitz and a deeply conservative Bedouin culture... Rhonda did not love it. Not as much fun as Swing in London. Apparently his family felt like her name, which is, is spelled R-A-N-D-A, but I believe pronounced Rhonda. They felt that was too Western, so oh. they called her Haifa. Oh, hmm. okay. Weirdly, this did not work out as marriages go, and just a few years into the marriage, Rhonda told Mohammed she wanted a divorce. Slight problem, Rhonda had a five-month-old daughter by then, and Mohammed, while apparently providing Rhonda financial support over the years, kept the girl, and has never let her mother see her since. <gasps> really? That's terrible. Today, Rhonda's daughter is in her 40s. She's married to a powerful Emirati politician who's also a billionaire. But I thought this anecdote about kind of the ways that Muhammad controls things and Never seen her mom. Wow. Yeah. Thought that would be helpful as we move forward into our story. I should note for the record that Sheikh Mohammed is the father of 26 children. No. With his various wives. He has 12 kids with Sheikh Ahind bint Maktoum bin Juma al Maktoum, his wife since 1979. She is the first lady of Dubai. Okay. But note that polygamy, at least a constrained form of polygamy, is legal in the UAE. Under the law, Sheikh Mohammed, like all Muslim men there, may have as many as four wives 
as long as all are treated well and equally. How many husbands can the wives have? One, hmm. or maybe as low as 25% of one. Huh. <laughs> Seems a little unbalanced. Unclear whether they get a whole one or just part of one. <laughs> Anyway, I bring up his 1979 marriage in order to note that he had four children with another woman who was his wife starting in 1980, and then three with yet another wife starting in the early 80s. There was yet another marriage, lucky lady identity unknown, with whom he had a son in 1981. These all appear to have ended in divorce, as did his 1990s era marriage which also ended in divorce, along with the 1970s with Rhonda. That's five. So, hey now, you're an all-star. Get your Get game, your game on. on. Wow. Go play. Okay, so while his home life was admittedly messy and getting messier by the day, it is worth considering some of his accomplishments and scandals as the super rich guy helming Dubai, which is the UAE's commercial capital. Abu Dhabi is its political capital. The first thing to understand is that Dubai law establishes that all undeveloped land in the country is owned by the Al Maktoum family, his ah. family, meaning that development personally enriches him and, you know, his family. Well, that's a helpful little structure. Yeah, Mohammed has leaned into developing Dubai with a relish bordering on a fetish. Um, it is obviously one of the the world's leading playgrounds for the rich. I mean, it it is a fancy developed oh, yeah. place these days. I have never been to Dubai. Same. Like much of... I'm not rich enough to go to Dubai. No, no. Like much of its region, Dubai was heavily dependent on oil to fund itself even into the 1980s. But the ruling family, his father, understood that oil is finite. And he had this cool quote that I read in researching this where he was like, my grandfather rode camels, my father rode camels, I drive a Mercedes, my son drives a Land Rover, but his son will ride a camel. Like if they stayed with oil as their right. main product, that would not work out long term, was his thinking. If they wanted to stay rich forever, they were going to have to diversify. To start this off, Mohammed took point on launching Emirates Airlines, which is a state-owned carrier, and it seems to be a major sponsor of every significant sports event in the world. In 1995, while not yet the official ruler of Dubai, that was his brother had the role at the time. He wouldn't, in fact, become a ruler until 06, but he was the de facto ruler from the time his father died. Anyway, Mohammed launched the Dubai Shopping Festival, which annually welcomes millions of visitors to enjoy a huge catalog of entertainment options, fireworks, live music, and of course, tax-free shopping. Even better, Emirates Airlines offers bargain basement prices for tickets to attend. Fantastic. The Dubai Shopping Festival has brought in tens of billions of dollars in revenue over the decades. Oh, boosting, I bet. Yeah, tourism, entertainment, I mean, the obviously retail, big deal. Also, in the late 90s, again, they're going to transition to a more tourism-based structure. One of Mohammed's companies, and there is a lot of fuzziness over what is his personal property and what is state property, and I think that fuzziness is on purpose, went hard at luxury hotels, launching the Jumeirah Beach Hotel in 1997. And in 99, after a three-year process of building an island to build the hotel on, Dubai unveiled the then world's tallest luxury hotel, the Burj Al Arab 
Hopefully I'm pronouncing that sort of right. Then Mohammed launched Dubai Internet City, a tech hub and free trade zone, and then he overlaid Dubai Media City on it the following year, which did require Mohammed to make some assurances about freedom of the press in this little authoritarian Interesting. patch of land. He would later have to bar the imprisonment of journalists after a few were prosecuted. So... Oh, my. In 2002, while he was still just the de facto ruler of Dubai, he issued a decree allowing foreigners to purchase property there, which really opened the floodgates for huge population growth and an investment boom that is still going strong today. Then there are the Palm Islands. I think only one is completed as of yet. But this is another project spearheaded by a company, Mohammed Controls, which built this gigantic archipelago, I guess, that looks like an encircled palm tree and can be seen from space. No, it cannot. Oh, yes. Uh, This mighty structure features hotels, shopping, and residential areas. It is a huge tourist draw. It's kind of a feat of it. Like, you've certainly seen pictures of it over the years. Like, it's kind of a famous thing. And so, like, a feat of engineering, a, you know, modern wonder of the world or whatever, but apparently also a bit of an ecological disaster for Dubai's coastline and yeah, sea life. So, I would think so. So that's all interesting. Through it all, the UAE has consistently been named on lists of human rights abusers, uh, migrant workers who are drawn to, you know, the hope of prosperity, like good work, good wage. They've long been ground down by unpaid wages, wage theft, and other abuses by companies sponsoring their visas. You may not be surprised to learn that Mohammed is himself a pony boy. A pony boy, you say? He owns perhaps the largest horse racing operation on planet Earth, uh, as well as perhaps the biggest horse breeding company on planet Earth. He's into the studs. Anyway, he owns stables and horsey facilities in the U.S., Ireland, the U.K., and Australia, as well as Dubai. Holy horses. Puzzlingly, his horses fail their drug tests kind of on the regular. Oh, and no. Mohammed gets very, very angry at those dastardly trainers when this happens. So, hard to find good help. One last, maybe, scandal. In 2006, UNICEF rescued hundreds of children who had been kidnapped and taken to Dubai, where they were enslaved and forced to race camels, which is hella dangerous. Like, these kids get badly hurt when they, like, fall off. Camels are apparently very fast. This is terrible. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, this is the the kidnapping thing is fairly widespread in the region, with estimates of anywhere from five thousand to forty thousand trafficked children forced. Oh my God! Yeah, forced to work as camel jockeys after being snatched from places like Afghanistan, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Iran, Sudan. Terrible. Yeah, the kids are forced to live in camps near their racetracks, and obviously are subject to all manner of abuse and deprivation while there. This sort of child trafficking has been officially banned in the UAE for 20 years now, yeah. but uh, abuses likely continue. I think everyone sort of agrees that there's just a culture of that. Let us return now to Mohammed's exceedingly complicated family life. In the year of our Lord 2004, having divorced, I think, his backup wives, he was perhaps down to just one. Time for three more. Batter up. It was the ponies that brought him together with his sixth wife, Jordan's Princess Haya bint Hussein. Haya, born May 3rd, 1974, is the daughter of the late King Hussein of Jordan. 
and the half-sister of Jordan's current monarch, King Abdullah II. She grew up in considerable privilege. She was educated in the UK. She's a graduate of Oxford University. She began competing in equestrian events when she was 13 and has won medals at the Pan-Arab Games and earned a spot on the 2000 Jordanian Olympic team in show jumping. Pony boy meets pony girl. Yes, in a pony world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) In 2002, she competed at the World Equestrian Games in Spain. Oh my. Where a certain autocrat from Dubai was also participating, and according to Haya, they fell in love over the ponies. In 09, she told the Daily Mail, it was wonderful to understand someone without the need for words. Wow. This is reportedly how the plural marriage situation works for Dubai's ruling family. Every royal wife has her own compound, where she lives with her children and staff and all of that, while Mohammed himself lives at Zebil Palace, a massive mansion and grounds compound in the heart of the city. Typically, the wives are expected to wait for their husband to come and visit them, but that custom was waived for Haya, who was always welcome to visit Mohammed at his home. So while this 2004 wedding certainly did seem to have some politics to it, I mean... He's marrying into the Jordanian royal family, and anyway. They were also genuinely close for a long time. They would ride horses together to unwind, and she attended diplomatic events and public ceremonies, always foregoing the hijab. She never covered her hair. It was a little bit scandalous. It must have been extraordinarily effective marketing, especially to Westerners, to see this modern Oxford-educated wife on the arm of Dubai's ruler, even if he is 25 years her senior. But, I mean, he's trying to sell Dubai as a destination. Sure. Two kids joined them in 07 and 2012. And Haya herself became active in organizations like the International Olympic Committee and the International Federation for Equestrian Sports, where she served as president for two terms. Slightly embarrassing, though, her time as president overlapped a period where her husband and one of her stepsons were both convicted by the organization for doping their horses. Oh, no. Although she kind of played it off as a political thing intended to hurt her and her family. Animal welfare is not at the heart of the story. It doesn't seem like animal or human welfare really factors in too heavily. We're not even to the good part yet. Oh, God. But as his treatment of his first wife might indicate, there were some fairly large issues in the brain pan of Sheikh Mo when it came to women. In the summer of 2000, before Haya and Mohammed had even met, one of his daughters, the Sheikha Shamsa is her name, then 19, fled his estate in Surrey in England and spent weeks, you know, crashing with friends in London like she was trying to get away from him. My little runaway. She wanted freedom. And instead, in August of 2000, as she exited a bar in Cambridge, she was grabbed by four armed men, (sighs) put on a private jet, and flown back to Dubai. She has not been seen in public (sighs) since. It's 22 years ago. Oh, my God. Yeah, apparently they tracked her cell phone signal, and that's how they... This will reappear as well. Also, the UK barely investigated this kidnapping... On one of its own streets, like, it, the whole thing was botched. This sounds like Jack Bauer in 24, just random kidnap attempts in the middle of the street. It's terrible. So this all kind of faded to memory until 2018, when Shamsa's sister, the Sheikha Latifa, who was then in her 30s, attempted to flee. 
This was not her first time either. In 02, during a riding expedition when she was 16, she tried to peel off and cross the border into Oman. Make a break for it. Yeah, she thought it was just going to be wide open desert and it there was a fence that she had to climb and locals saw a rando climbing the border fence and called police. Her father put her into what she says was solitary confinement for three and a half years where she was tortured. Oh my God. For the outrage of attempting to climb into Oman. On February 24th of 2018, Latifa and a Finnish friend, Tina, a fitness instructor who had trained Latifa, executed a plan that they had been hatching for a couple of years by that point. Okay. Latifa had been barred from leaving Dubai since her sister's escape attempt in 2000. She had no passport. But she had read a book by a former French spy called Escape from Dubai because he had been charged with what he says were trumped up charges and he himself had to flee Dubai. Sure. And Tina had spent the prior six months back and forth to the Philippines to work with him and like get trained in what they would need to do to extract Latifa from. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm invested. Feeling it's going to go terribly, but I'm really terribly. invested in the story. That day, Latifa had her driver take her to a cafe that she frequented. Once inside, she went to the bathroom, changed her clothes, altered her appearance a bit, threw away her phone. She and Tina got into a car. This was Latifa's first time riding in the front seat of a car. This is wow. how. Yeah. And they drove six hours to the capital of Oman. A friend of the spy met them there. And they all piled into a dinghy and set out for international waters in the Gulf of Oman. This is not even the best part. Oh, and uh, it was storming at the time because of course it was. was. At that point, and I am not making this up, Latifa and Tina got onto a pair of jet skis to complete the journey to a... Sounds like James Bond! To a U.S. flag yacht, the Nostromo, where the French spy was waiting. The plan was to sail to Goa, India, where Latifa hoped to get on a U.S.-bound plane and seek asylum in the States. Instead, after about 10 days at sea, a joint Indian-UAE commando operation began. Reportedly, with some intelligence help from the FBI, Mohammed had told them that his daughter had been kidnapped by criminals. My daughter's been kidnapped by rock stars. Yeah, so Latifa was, like, literally dragged kicking and screaming from the boat. And taken back to oh, Dubai. I mean, and a, her heart. an attack helicopter landed on this. There were boats. There were speed. But it was, it was a big deal. Sometimes you gotta just let your kids go. Let them do the things they're gonna do in the world, man. Yeah, Tina and the spy were also taken into custody. They oh were my God. held in Dubai for some weeks. The spy was beaten for forty-five <sighs> minutes by the soldiers who boarded his boat. Cleverly, Latifa had recorded a like 40-minute-long video prior to her escape attempt outlining the conditions that she and her sister Shamsa had to endure from their father and accusing him of various things, including murder. <sighs> she had sent it out to various entities, including a UK-based group called Detained in Dubai, which released the video on the 11th of March. There was quite a media stir. Oh, I As bet. you can imagine. Not to mention that the government of Finland was now looking for Tina, their citizen. Right. The British were like, huh, didn't we drop the ball when Sheikh Mohammed did this before? And the guy who had met them in Oman ended up in custody there for more than a month. Oh, my God. That guy is also French. He moved his family to Luxembourg after he was released. So the UAE issued an Interpol red notice about him, which resulted in his being held for 41 days in Luxembourg. 
just because they're punitive sorts there in the UAE. This is terrible. While Dubai's official reaction was that Latifa had been brought home and that she was all good and with her family, NGOs like Human Rights Watch were having none of it. The UN weighed in, demanding answers from both India and the UAE. At the 2018 Kentucky Derby, where Mohammed and Haya frequently were in attendance because horsies, activists hired a plane to fly a banner overhead that read, Dubai, where is Princess Latifah? Oh, that's got to be uncomfortable. Yeah. You know those 26 kids with the six or seven different wives? Yeah. Well, it turns out that Sheikh Latifah has two half-sisters who are also named Latifa. So to combat the international furor, UAE's internal media started covering their activity extensively. So if someone in Dubai googled Princess Latifa or Sheikha Latifa, they would find out what the vice chair of Dubai's Culture and Arts Authority was up to. Big time. It's times. like three card Mani, but just three card Latifa. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, we're just it's gonna... terrible. Yeah, there's a yeah. That's why she's trending on Twitter because she cut a ribbon at some ceremony. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Princess Haya, meanwhile, had already become disenchanted with her authoritarian husband, who was by then pushing 70 and increasingly focused on his legacy, which I think will be substantial in Dubai's history, regardless of all of this. Unhelpfully, Haya had been having an affair with one of her bodyguards Mm. for a year or two when Latifah made her escape, and after Latifah's return, Haya was reportedly distressed over her treatment and how the royal family was trying to cover things up. In a January 5th, 2019 interview, she said that if Latifah's story of abuse was true, she would stop defending her husband. And then she disappeared from the public entirely. Oh, no. This was not known at the time, even to Haya, but on February 7th of 2019, which is the 20th anniversary of the death of her father, Mohammed divorced her under Sharia law. (gasps) Didn't tell her. Oh. Just did it. Oh. Sometime in I mean, and she's a legit princess. Yes. Yeah. Yes. She is a Jordanian princess. Yes. Sometime in the spring of 2019, reportedly with the help of a German diplomat, Haya and her two children escaped first to Germany and then emerged in the UK a few months later seeking asylum there. The news was pretty explosive, especially with the whole Latifa outrage still fresh in everyone's mind. Mohammed, who sidelines as a classical poet, Published a poem on his Instagram feed that foreign policy's Ola Salem helpfully translated. It ended this way. Mm -mm. You no longer have a place with me. Walk away with whoever you were busy with. Let your wickedness help you. I care not whether you live or die. So just airing it all out in public like that. That's cheerful. The UK's foreign office has said that Mohammed attempted to use, you know, private and diplomatic channels to get the UK to ship them back. Don't you think you'd just stop now? Like it's gone really badly for everyone else you've tried this with. Maybe lesson learned. You're 70. No lessons learned. Ride some horses, play some fucking golf. No lessons learned. Luckily, by then, the UK government understood what was actually happening here. It only took us 20 years. (laughs) So getting nowhere on that, in mid-May, Mohammed filed suit in England and Wales to compel the UK government to send his children back. Nope. Instead, on July 30th, the High Court granted Haya's request to make her children official wards of the Court of the United Kingdom and to issue a forced marriage protection order for her daughter to protect her from 
like she's 13 and being pulled yeah being pulled back and forced to marry yes and a non-molestation order for herself (sighs) oh my god Haya already owned, it's like an 84 million pound home near Kensington Palace in London. So she had a place to go. She had a place. Mohammed dispatched some guys to try to buy the property next door to it, though. No. Pretty sure that did not go through. But all of this did end up, just all of these compounding incidents in her that, that built this incredible case that she was under constant threat from her ex-husband. The legal drama that played out over the next couple of years or so was, from a trashy divorce's perspective, absolutely amazing. We learned that the bodyguard Hyatt had an affair with had himself been married, and the affair broke that up. We also learned that she had paid several security guards, including the boyfriend, more than $6 million to keep it quiet. Wow. That did not actually work, and once the Sheikh knew about it, he'd do fun stuff like leave a pistol on her pillow next to her, pointed at her head. (sighs) Another time, he sent a helicopter to her house and threatened to take her off to a remote desert prison. Oh, my God. Just fun stuff. Just normal husband stuff. There were also texts from Mohammed to Haya upon her resurfacing in the UK. He had apparently tried to pressure the Germans to send her back as well. So I, she's been running. He texted her, you and the children will never be safe in England. Another said, we can reach you anywhere. There was also a phone hacking scandal with the high court finding that Mohammed had authorized use of the Pegasus spyware system against Haya and her lawyers. Super problematically, her lead lawyer is a woman named Fiona Shackleton, who is a member of the House of Lords. So the government was taking this very seriously. I can't even. This is the most incredible story I've ever heard. Next sentence. Fiona was actually tipped off to the hacking by none other than Sherry Blair, wife of Tony Blair. No. Blair worked as an advisor to Israel's NSO group, which created the Pegasus spyware and then sold it to the UAE. They canceled their contract with the UAE after this came out because he was spying on like Latifa oh. and uh-uh. the activists who were trying to like smuggling phones to her and stuff like he this was an extensive it's weird what happens when we give people just unparalleled access and power and i should say that sheikh mohammed denies that uae had anything to do yes all of this is allegedly allegedly Mm -hmm. well you know what judges do not care for this sort of behavior and the longer this dragged on the more determined the court became to ensure that the kids stayed with their mother especially in light of the father having already kidnapped his own children repeatedly. By the time the case concluded in December of 2021, Justice Philip Moore was explicit in his awarding of $720 million or 550 million pounds. This is the largest settlement in UK history. I'm sorry, how much? $720 million. Wow. 550 million pounds. That's That's a lot of... It's a lot of... It's a lot of ponies you can buy. Anyway, Justice Philip Moore was really clear that this incredible amount of money was required because Haya had to protect herself and her children from Mohammed. For the rest of their lives, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. Dude bro has to pay half a billion or so, three quarters of a billion, depending on what currency you're you're in. So his ex-wife, who has full custody of the children, can pay for security to protect herself and them from him. 
around the clock. Yeah. For the rest of their lives. For the rest of, yeah. What? I think for the kids, it's until they graduate college. But I think the court at that point would assume like, well, you know, you're an adult now. If you want to go and have a relationship with your dad and live under his thumb. (laughs) Anyway. I believe that Haya's current situation is that she is an official envoy of the Jordanian government, so she enjoys diplomatic immunity in the United Kingdom. Back in Dubai, Latifa appears to have finally been granted some freedom, perhaps as part of the PR effort in the UK court. <laughs> However, she's been photographed you know, in a mall in Dubai, as well as while traveling in Spain and in Iceland. She's been able to meet with and text activists who have been championing her cause including human rights lawyers and the hashtag free Latifa campaign that had sprung up to advocate for her ended after three and a half years when she appeared to be, you know, doing her own thing, has a passport, can travel. Like Her sister Shamsa, as far as I can tell, remains locked up in her father's palace. Oh my God. So that, Alicia, is more or less the story of the escape of Princess Haya bint Hussein from the clutches of a dude who really really does not seem to think that women should have much in the way of rights. I don't know what type of flag Dubai has, but I assume it's red. And as trash cans go, like just a a desert full of luxury trash cans. Yeah, I think this has got to be the highest trash can count. There's 550 million. Yeah, I mean. Wow. I've never heard anything like that. That sounds like a it sounds fictional, completely yeah. fictional, made-up movie yeah. that you just wouldn't believe if you watched it. Nope. In fact, someone should make that movie. TM. TM. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> no, I mean, if I think if you're in the UK, you probably this was probably very prominent in the news over a long period of time. So that was incredible. That was terrible, well, but that was incredible. Yeah. I think we won't be welcome in Dubai after this, so. Oh, yeah, we're definitely flagged for (laughs) sure. But we don't have the horses to get in either. We don't have any horses at all. Thank you, Stacey. You're welcome. All right, friends, I'm going to have you hold your horses for just another minute. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors this week. I have something way less considerably (laughs) trashy. I was coming in feeling pretty good about it, but wow. See you on the flip, friends. Hey, Trash Pandas, when you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island, from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Summer reading season is upon us. Have you ever considered how your personal finances would read as a literary genre? Would it be a sweet romance with a happy ending? 
or a thriller you could only read during the day. The clever ladies at the Oak Tree Group want to help you write your most compelling financial story. These three holistic planners have 77 years of combined experience helping people navigate all kinds of financial plot twists and turns. They can help you with a wide breadth of financial strategies. Check out their website, www.theoaktreegroup.net, and see the experience and areas of expertise these women bring to the people they serve. The Oak Tree Group is offering our listeners a free one-hour consultation on your financial script. See their website, www.theoaktreegroup.net, for additional contact details. And we're back. So, Alicia, I feel like this is a, and now for something completely different kind of story. Completely different. Okay. No similar theme at all. <laughs> all right. Today I've got the trashy divorce of Elizabeth Moss hmm. and Fred Armisen. Okay. So Elizabeth Moss, one of the most successful character actresses today, she started acting as a child in the 90s with a recurring role in the TV series that was a hit, Picket Fences. Okay. She appeared in the 1995 remake of Escape to Witch Mountain, Ooh. the original. I loved the book. Can't top it. Okay. Elizabeth Moss even plays a young Ashley Judd in the TV movie biopic Love Can Build a Bridge <laughs> in 1995 as well. Okay. She has a recurring role on The West Wing from 1999 to 2006. I don't know if you remember that. I think she played... Is she the one who got kidnapped? Maybe, uh, Zoe. <sighs> It was a long time ago. How did I not realize? Okay. Anyway, it is Elizabeth Moss's role as Peggy Olson in Mad Men that she mm -hmm. really proves her acting chops. Yeah. During the show's run, Elizabeth Moss is nominated for five Emmy Awards for Outstanding Lead Actress in a Drama Series, one Emmy nomination, too, for Outstanding Supporting Actress. And her acting career since starring in Mad Men has been so prolific in such a short time that Maybe you, Trash Pandas, I know I did, missed the drama that happened in her personal life. Just kind of a blip. Didn't take very long, but there was a lot of trashy drama. Elizabeth Moss was married to comedic actor Fred Armisen for 10 months before <laughs> she realizes that she has made a terrible mistake. Wow. Since ending the marriage, Elizabeth Moss has opened up about the marriage that she describes as quote-unquote extremely traumatic. Oh, wow. Let's get into it. Elizabeth Singleton Moss was born July 24th, 1982 in Los Angeles. Both of her parents were musicians as well as Scientologists. So Elizabeth and her brother were raised within the Church of Scientology. While both of her parents have a background in performing, Elizabeth naturally is motivated and encouraged to try her hand at show business at an early age. Her first acting role is in the NBC TV miniseries Lucky Chances in 1990, when Elizabeth is just a scant six years old. Elizabeth is more interested in pursuing a professional dancing career, though. It's not acting that really does it for her. Elizabeth will study at the School of American Ballet in New York City, and later with Suzanne Farrell at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., but dancing may be her love. She pursues it. Elizabeth is also working as a young actress and appears in roles throughout her childhood. Due to her busy performing schedule, Elizabeth is homeschooled by a private tutor. Elizabeth Moss impresses her co-stars in her role as Polly 
the teenage burn victim in the film Girl Interrupted. That role soon was followed by her role on West Wing, then Mad Men, and it's through her role in Mad Men that puts Moss in the position to meet the man that she would marry and divorce in just a few months. Fred Armisen, actor, comedian, writer, producer, musician. Fred Armisen was born December 4th, 1966 in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Fred's mother is Venezuelan. Fred's father is German and Korean. And the Armisons do not stay in Mississippi very long. They will move to New York when Fred is just a, just a young child. He attends high school with another Saturday Night Live former alum, Jim Brewer. And then Fred goes on to the School of Visual Arts in Manhattan, but drops out just before graduating to become a rock drummer. So want to be in a band. I mean, (laughs) rhythm is my life. So after dropping out of college, Fred will play with the local band for a little while. But oddly, that doesn't work out. Fred moves to Chicago and becomes a drummer for a different band before playing background drums for the Blue Man Group within the 1990s. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Now, Fred, serious drummer, he continues to play the drums on tracks for different bands, including Wandering Lucy, Devo, Matthew Sweet, and the house band for Late Night with Seth Meyers. Hmm. But he's not just talented with the rhythm and the drums, because Fred Armerson is going to transition into television. And he'll appear on Late Night with Conan O'Brien, Crank Yankers, and Adult Swim. These smaller parts will lead to occasional roles on Saturday Night Live starting in 2002. In 2004, Fred is promoted to permanent cast member. Huzzah! He's popular on the show for his impersonations, including Barack Obama, Prince, and Queen Elizabeth II. That's diverse, okay. Recently, his most recognizable and popular role has been in the show Portlandia. Mm-hmm. Yes. When Fred meets Elizabeth, he had already been married and divorced. In 1998, he had married singer and songwriter Sally Timms. That marriage lasts about six years. The couple divorces in 2004. Let's get these kids together. According to the New York Times, Elizabeth Moss met Fred Armisen in October 2008 when her Mad Men co-star John Hamm hosts Saturday Night Live. Apparently, Fred and Elizabeth hit it off right away, begin dating immediately. What follows is a whirlwind romance. The relationship is made public when the couple appears together at the Vanity Fair party for Mad Men at the Chateau Marmont in January 2009. So like three months later, it's public. Shortly after that, the two are engaged. Hmm. This is very Very, quick. Very fast. Okay. Moss will confirm the engagement in an interview with USA Weekend Magazine in January 2009. Three months. It's going to go great. (laughs) Always does. Elizabeth refuses to give any details about the engagement, saying that it's private, but she would only say that their engagement was quote unquote perfect. The couple is tight-lipped about their wedding plans and details, The only comment given by Armisen to reporters is at the Screen Actors Guild Awards in January of that same year, 2009. Fred says, quote, it'll be the coolest and funniest wedding, unquote. The couple romantically plan their nuptials to take place on October 25th, 2009, the anniversary of the day that they first met. (laughs) Okay. 
the one year anniversary of, of their meeting. Yes. Okay. So. Okay. Well, don't. At least they're not rushing. <laughs> Elizabeth and Fred will wed in front of friends and family at the Foundry in Long Island City, New York. The Foundry is a 19th century building beautifully restored in keeping with its original industrial character and design. The affair is what the couple describes as medium-sized. Elizabeth Moss, who is 27 at the time of her wedding, will choose to wear a gown designed by Claire Pettibone. Of the couture designer, Elizabeth Moss says, It was the only and first designer I ever wanted. I just thought the dresses were really beautiful. Hmm. It's Moss's co-star from Girl Interrupted, Whoopi Goldberg, you may have heard of her, who will break the news on the marriage on her show, The View, the Monday following the wedding. Elizabeth Moss is asked what she loves most about Fred Armisen, and she says, that's an incredible hard question. Fred is asked the same question, what he loves most about Elizabeth. Fred replies, our love is too much for words. I couldn't do that justice because the words wouldn't be right. Well, it goes wrong pretty fast. I mean, that's, yeah, clearly. As promising as the wedding seemed, the marriage lasts for 10 months. The very quick separation and divorce filing had everyone wondering what could have gone wrong so swiftly. And some speculate that it probably, more than likely, definitely has something to do with her strong belief in Scientology. Hmm. Us Weekly reports that, quote, her religion was as important to her as their marriage, if not more, and that Armisen, quote, could not get with it, unquote. However, Fred Armisen has never publicly commented on her religion or pointed to that as a cause for their marital woes. The divorce is finalized in May of 2011, and both parties remain tight-lipped about the reasons for several months. And then what happened? Then, in March 2012, Elizabeth Moss admits to the New York Post, page 6 magazine, quote, One of the greatest things I heard someone say about him is, he's so great at doing impersonations but the greatest impersonation he does is that of a normal person. To me, that sums it up, unquote. Wow. Wow. Right? That's bleak. The greatest impersonation he does is of a normal person. Wow. Okay, but she goes on. I've never told anyone that, and I don't want to waste any more of my life talking about it. Go, Elizabeth, go. And then what happened? Well, she may not have wanted to waste any more time talking about it, but a few years later, she sure as shit is going to waste some more time talking about it. This time, she is willing to say a few more things. In 2014, telling New York Magazine, Looking back, I feel like I was really young, and at the time, I didn't think I was that young. That's a reasonable reaction, for sure, and one that many people can understand. However... Elizabeth will continue her statement with a comment that left some folks wondering even more what could have gone wrong in such a short amount of time because Elizabeth will continue with, it was extremely traumatic and awful and horrible. Wow. (laughs) If the breakup came from her being too young, a lack of maturity, or maybe just rushing into the marriage, words like difficult, heartbreaking, challenging would be completely understandable, but it was not those words. It was extremely traumatic, awful, and horrible, which are not words that would typically be used unless something matching those descriptions had happened. Yeah. 
So what causes the couple to go yeah, their separate ways after 10 months? We still don't know. Moss did try to end the statement on a somewhat positive <laughs> note, saying, At the same time, it turned out for the best. I'm glad that I'm not there. I'm glad that it didn't happen when I was 50. I'm glad I didn't have kids. I got that out of the way, hopefully. Like, that's probably not going to happen again. Okay, that's what Elizabeth says. Uh-huh. What about Fred? Yeah. Okay. Armisen doesn't say a lot about the quick split, but he doesn't appear too broken up about it either because he's reportedly dating his Saturday Night Live co-star, Abby Elliott, less than a week after he and Elizabeth separate. Hmm. Four months after the split, Fred makes his first comment to The New Yorker when he says that he tended to treat, quote, romantic relationships in a cold way, unquote. Ice, ice, baby. In 2013, Fred is a guest on the Howard Stern radio show, which tends to be a place where people open up. Yeah. Often unwisely. Moss had already made some statements about their marriage in 2012, so Fred, I guess, figures that he will reveal a few things, too, to his buddy, Howard Stern. Howard Stern will read him Elizabeth Moss's comment about him doing a great impersonation of being a normal person, and he said, Howard Stern says, she must fucking hate you. (laughs) Fred Armisen replies, I imagine so. Well... Howard Stern continues with, you must have been a terrible husband. Fred answers, I think I was a terrible husband. I think I'm a terrible boyfriend. He goes on to explain that he gets very caught up in the beginning of his romances, but eventually gets tired of being with the same woman, saying, I want it all fast. I want to be married. I want to live together. And then somewhere around a year or two years, I get freaked out. I freak out emotionally. And then I actually feel like, oh my God. Who is the stranger in my house? Okay. He already had a six-year marriage? Yeah. Okay. Fred will go on to confess that he does not like the feeling of being tied down to the same person and really does rather enjoy dating whomever he pleases. Howard Stern follows that up by asking him, Do you feel entitled to more women? Armisen said, I don't want to admit that out loud to myself, but that probably is it. Like, it it takes a lot for you to be jerkier than Howard Stern it, on Howard mm. Stern's show. Like, that is an accomplishment. Yeah, like, I know Dude. Howard Stern's shtick is largely to get famous people to say cringy shit like that. But that's some cringy shit right there. It gets worse. Oh, good. Uh-huh. Since Armisen, right, is in a very sharing mood, he <laughs> will explain his technique of getting women to break up with him once he is no longer interested in them. Oh, and what's the secret there? Quote, you sort of withdraw and you sort of get into all the things that you think make you weird. Like, I'm really into playing Xbox or my record collection. You sort of disappear into the things that you think are your hobbies. I should probably go back to therapy. Yeah, Fred. Probably should. Probably should. Bro, dude. Uh, Does he feel guilty? Kind of, he says. He tells Howard, I feel bad for everyone. I've gone out with. Wow. Dude. Wow. You asked about his first wife. Hold on, because mm. that's not what you think it is either. Because Howard Stern, right, upon hearing about all this, will ask him about his first marriage to English singer Sally Timms, 
which, right, lasts for six years. And he said that they were actually just really good friends and only made it official more for her green card. I... (laughs) So Howard Stern follows up. How about Abby Elliott, the person that you were dating within a week of your separation from your wife, Elizabeth? Fred ends things with her as soon as their spark fizzled, quote unquote. So it seems that no one really has to wonder anymore about the reason for the demise of the marriage between Elizabeth Moss and Fred Armisen. However, it appears that he may have learned a little something because since 2014, he has been dating actress Natasha Lyonne. The couple has been going together for eight years. I had no idea. I love her. I had I love no her too. idea. But I mean... I can't see her putting up with any of his crap. No, but also I think they're... They're both deeply strange people. Like, cool, Equally don't get me wrong. But, and, mm-hmm. Yeah, embracing all of their... That yeah. Really, they may have found each other. Yeah, creators, creatives. As for Elizabeth Moss, her star only takes off even more after her split from Fred Armisen. In 2013, she's nominated for a Primetime Emmy Award for her role in the series Top of the Lake. In 2015, Elizabeth will star in The Heidi Chronicles on Broadway for which she was nominated for a Tony Award. And since 2017, she has been captivating audiences in The Handmaid's Tale, which she has also directed and produced. The Handmaid's Tale has been nominated for seven primetime Emmys and has won two of those. It's been some extraordinary television, although not easy to watch. I'm sure it's difficult to, to make as well. It's an intense show. In 2020, her performance in the thriller The Invisible Man also will land Elizabeth Rave reviews. And just so no one needs to worry about Elizabeth Moss, she seems to have recovered just fine from her short and extremely traumatic marriage and trashy divorce from Fred Armisen. As trash cans go, solid 10. 10 months, 10 trash cans. That's kind of... Seems right. To me, the way the math works out on that... That feels right. Ups and downs, short-lived, and honestly, you gotta work hard to be more of a jerk than Howard Stern. On his own show. That's some claim to fame right there. Yep. All right, well, I had no idea about any of that. It was so quick, you blinked and missed it. Mm -hmm. So, glad I was able to fill you in. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this episode of Trashy Divorces. We appreciate y'all so much Mm -hmm. telling your friends, your kind reviews, your sweet emails. I can't believe we're almost done with season 14. We are going to be back on Wednesday. Kind of a special thing for you Wednesday for Trashy Breakups. You can also check us out at patreon.com slash trashy divorces. And for any Marilyn Monroe fans out there, this is definitely the week to check in on my other secret podcast, my other fascination Done and done. We are in the middle of a Marilyn Monroe series. If y'all are into that, you might like checking that out. It's a good summer listen. I think that's the rest of the biz. Again, thanks everybody for tuning in. Mm -hmm. Until we talk again on Wednesday, keep your hands clean. Keep your hearts trashy. Big love. Have a tremendous week, friends. Bye. Bye. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia by us. Stacy and Alicia, 
with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram and definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there. And thanks again, everybody, for listening. Keep it trashy, y'all.